Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What if you could recreate a Great Plains hailstone in a laboratory? What could we learn from hurling dozens of these hailstones toward a building? Today's guest, Hale, from the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, where a team of scientists is doing just that. This team, led by Dr. Tanya Brown-Giamanco and Dr. Ian Giamanco, is using 3D printers to replicate hailstones collected across the plains and test how well structures can withstand such an impact. Hail damage across the U.S. can total over $1 billion annually, and we'll discuss how their research can be used to reduce costly property losses in the future. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and thank you both for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. That's oh, great to be here, Marshall. Thanks for having us. Yeah, you know, I've been familiar with your organization for some time, so it's really neat to have you on. Uh, I'm going to give some of your credentials a bit later on, but before we do that, many of our listeners may not be very familiar with your organization, so tell us a little bit about IBHS. Well, IBHS is a nonprofit that's uh, sponsored by the insurance industry through a membership. And we're basically out there to figure out how storms affect buildings and how we can either mitigate future damages or pick the right products and construction techniques uh, to make sure that some of these natural disasters aren't quite so big of an impact on, on our homes and our businesses. Yeah, so this is really this is a really good example of how the weather enterprise in some ways is connected to the broader business enterprise because you noted that this is an organization uh, research laboratory that essentially has been set up by the insurance industry. Yeah, that's exactly right. We've got uh, about 80% of the property insurers in this country are our members, um, and they really wanted to to put together a facility that would allow us to better understand building performance because, um, you know, we're losing a lot of money on the insured side, but there's also a lot of people that are affected. Um, the number of people that are displaced from their homes and don't have a job to go back to following some of these natural disasters, um, the insurance industry felt like they could uh, really make a difference by funding uh, an organization like this and doing it for the greater good. Now, now, Ian, what's your role at the uh, at the institute? And then I will come back and Tanya ask you the same question. Yeah, as a as a researcher, I, I technically would be our lead research meteorologist, and what that means is really understanding uh, the hazards um, and and how the the weather part of what we do affects the built environment, and also to make sure when we're testing things that we do. Uh, recreate uh, effectively the characteristics of the hazards. And, and I, you know, most of my work has been on hail lately, but that's, that also applies to wind, uh, the wildfire scenarios where you're looking at wind-driven embers, uh, making sure we replicate those hazards and the characteristics that really matter uh, when we talk about how weather affects the built environment. So, so having that atmospheric science background and bringing that to bear uh, is just one piece of the puzzle. And speaking of that background, uh, Ian has a bachelor's degree in atmospheric science from University of Louisiana Monroe, a master's degree in atmospheric science, and a PhD in uh, wind science and engineering from Texas Tech University. He's also an adjunct faculty research associate at Texas Tech and a member of the American Meteorological Society Weather and Climate Financial Risk Committee. Uh, two people here that really know their stuff. Uh, Tanya, what's your role at the um, at the organization? 
I am one of the managing directors of our research program uh, together with Dr. Murray Morrison. And our job really is to manage the research staff and the programs and and projects that we do within our laboratory facility, whether it's um, big, large test chamber projects, um, small lab projects, field projects, um, things like that. We're really the the group that does the research and, and formulates the projects and actually executes on them. Yeah, just to give you a little background on Tanya, she's Vice President Director of Hail Research at IBHS, uh, South Carolina Wind and Hail Underwriting Association Chair. Uh, she got her PhD at, in wind science and engineering at Texas Tech University uh, and has a master's degree in water resource science and a BS in atmospheric science from the University of Kansas. So here's the bottom line, folks. I'm talking to people today that know their hailstones. Uh, by the way, just curious, um, the, sort of, did you guys meet at Texas Tech or that does that just a coincidence? We definitely met at Texas Tech um, while we were graduate students in the PhD program Ah, and uh, spent a lot of time doing field research there, which is kind of where we found our, um, our, our research. Yeah, Yeah, that's, uh, it, uh, it's fortunate that we we get to work together in our field. We know, you know, a lot of friends that it's similar situations where you meet your, your better half in in graduate school. And and we were lucky that that we were able to continue our careers in the the field that that we've worked in uh, together. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome because I think, as you both know, typically meteorologists are just passionate about what we do. We love it. We'd almost do it for free. Uh, but it's awesome to really be able to do it with someone uh, that you really can spend time with and actually like being with, too, in the case mm-hmm. of your case here. So let's let's geek out here. This is Weather Geeks. So you know, we, we talk about a lot of important topics, and we're going to talk about hail from many dimensions today. But let's just weather geek out for a second because many of our listeners you know, are weather intensive, but maybe not necessarily weather experts. Let's just do a little 101 on hail. First of all, uh, talk to us about hail. Uh, it's primarily found in, I think, and this is uh, really news to some people, in cumulonimbus or thunderstorms. Uh, oftentimes I have people uh, that, that say, hey, it's winter, Dr. Shepard, it's hailing, but it's actually just sleet or ice pellets. So can you dispel that myth and then just one of you give us a little 101 on how hail forms in a thunderstorm? Yeah, so um, you know, hail is something we deal with pretty much in all fifty states. Hail's happened in, in all of our fifty states, but primarily, if you look east of the Rockies, and and that's kind of something globally you see that, that you have this this area of severe weather that occurs kind of east of big mountain ranges, and our geography uh, gives us that that type of severe weather that we deal with. Um, so a couple of the, the kind of myths surrounding hail. A lot of people think um, you know hailstones have those nice pretty rings often. A lot of people thought that that's hailstones basically doing loops through the updraft. Well, a lot of our research has shown uh, through the the science community that that's not really the case. Hail just kind of has this arcing horizontal trajectory through the thunderstorm, and it's the the different types of of how hail grows that causes those rings. Um, we call it wet growth and dry growth, and there's some specifics behind that. Oh well, and you, and feel free to go into them. That's what we like to do on weather geeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in, a, in a kind of simple terms, wet growth is a slower process just caused by some of the heating that's released um, as, as water accumulates on the surface, whether it's super cool water, and then the the, the more cloudy, opaque ice is, is a more rapid process. Um, where you're collecting ice particles, a more rapid process. So you're trapping some of those those bubbles of air, gas uh, within the ice. You get a very opaque kind of color. 
Um, and then one of the, the myths that, that IBHS we've been able to kind of look at is, is everybody talks about strong, dense hail. And, and we've shown that that's, the two actually aren't that related. Um, strength comes from a variety of different things, kind of that internal structure of the hailstone. We don't know a lot about that yet. We know some things. Uh, but strength and density really aren't the, tied perfectly together. So there's a lot about hail we didn't know. And, and hail research is... Um, Kind of lag behind the uh, the other kind of severe convective storm hazard. We're looking at tornadoes, um, tornado genesis type work, as well as uh, tropical cyclones. Hail's kind of been forgotten a little bit, but um, a lot of people don't realize out of the dollars that are they're lost from severe thunderstorms each year, hail in any given year is sixty to eighty percent of that. So yeah. it's a big piece of the damage pie. Yeah, one billion annually, according to uh, notes that that I have here. Uh, so you know these are primarily associated with thunderstorms, cumulonimbus clouds. Uh, I think you have dispelled the myth that, it, frankly, even gets propagated in some of our classrooms about the up and down motion uh, of, of of the hailstone. Um, Tanya, what about the sort of sort of embryonic stages of hail? I mean, I, I, I know that, you know, a lot of people don't realize, and I, I said this in the barbershop one day, I said, you know, rain, even here in Athens, Georgia, where the University of Georgia is, often starts out as snow because you've got ice crystals and thunderstorms and you've got super cooled liquid, a lot of processes that cause those ice crystals to grow. They fall, they accrete with that cold water. You get grapple, you get all kinds of interesting things. So tell us about even just sort of the infant stages of a hailstone before it gets to those sort of growth stages where we get wet and dry growth. Usually we're starting out with some kind of particle, um, a dust particle, a salt particle, something like that. Um, you need some little particle that starts to collect those ice crystals or the water droplets, uh, the super cold water. Um, we've seen all kinds of different things start out as that kind of first embryo for hail growth. Um, but that's usually what starts the process. And, and then you just kind of build up from there, um, depending on, again, the processes that Ian talked about, whether or not you have white uh dry growth or wet growth kind of dictates what kind of structure you get in the hailstone. Um, but we're usually starting with some little tiny particle that gets the process going. Uh, so back, um, you know, many, many years ago, uh, the the concept of weather modification or, or cloud seeding uh, was one way to try to artificially address this by putting a whole bunch of particles into clouds uh, to try to start the process. And the thought was that you could make a lot of smaller particles by having a whole bunch of, of particulates for for the water and the ice to grow on. Uh, now, there's never really been a, a great study that's confirmed whether or not this actually helps, um, but it is that was kind of the foundational piece behind a lot of weather modification was artificially introducing a bunch of particles so that you would get a bunch of small hailstones as opposed to a handful of very big damaging ones. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up weather modification. There have been studies and even the AMS, uh, the American Meteorological Society, has weighed in on uh, advertent and inadvertent weather modification. Students often ask me, and, and, and the best I can tell is somewhat consistent with what you've just said about weather modification, whether it's hail or even rain making, is it's still somewhat inconclusive, even though I do know that there are companies out west and even nations around the world. I often show in class, uh, the Chinese military with artillery aimed at clouds during the Beijing Olympics because they were doing weather modification to try to rain the storm outs before they hit the venue. Uh, is that your understanding is that many of these weather modification efforts are still somewhat inconclusive? 
That's my general sense. Um, there, there are handfuls of them uh, that are operating around the world. I know there's been one in Canada for a long time. Um, I, I think the challenge is each storm is is really unique. Each each situation is unique. So you never really get a control data set. You never really know. Well, if this is a cloud that was seeded uh, and a storm that was seeded. What would have happened if I hadn't seeded it? So I, I think from an understanding of whether or not it makes a difference, that's the biggest challenge. You don't have a, a comparison that you can do um, between what was seeded and what wasn't because the clouds and, and the individual storms are so different. Right. I want to pivot the discussion now to, to talk about a hail study that you all started at the Institute in 2012. What, what was the motivation for this study? And in a nutshell, what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, so so we knew when we when we started Hale at the lab that we wanted to uh, try to to collect some data that we didn't necessarily think was out there. Understanding hail strength, that's what kind of governs the type of damage you might see if a hailstone hit a, a shingle. So you know, like any good scientist, you start with your literature review and go figure out what's out there. And um, you see, there's this kind of gap in hail research that kind of stopped in the early '80s, and it, it had to do with weather modification a, a little bit. Um, and so we knew we needed some more detailed data. We needed to understand that density strength. Was there a relationship there? Understand the shape factors. Nobody had really looked hard at the aerodynamics of hailstones um, in a while. So that has a, a role in, in how fast they fall, how much energy they have when they hit things. So like the, any good scientist, it's go out and get the data you need. If it didn't exist, find a way to go get it. So um, that was the objective as we started back in 2012 was to collect a lot of information on, on hailstones and their characteristics, shape, strength, density, et cetera. Um, we even image processed, did some, some two-dimensional work um, looking at just photos of hailstones. And, and I know uh, we'll probably talk a little bit about the 3D laser scanning aspect of that. Um, but, it, you know, there was a my, – my Ph.D. advisor always told a story. He got to work with, with Joanne Simpson um, – and, and she always told a story about you can just learn a lot just by looking. So we took that approach with hail. Why not? Let's let's see what we can learn just by looking at it. And that was to guide our laboratory testing. We've since evolved to look at more uh, hail swath characteristics using in situ instruments. Um, we collected enough data to guide us in the lab. So we've kind of transitioned over to looking at hail storms now uh, and, and their flavor. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I am talking with Tanya and Ian Giamanco. And they are with the Institute, uh, Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. They know a lot about hail. They know a lot about technology and observing hail and even the implications for the insurance industry. And we're going to dive into all of that. So if you um, have tuned into this podcast, congratulations. You're going to know a lot about hail by the end of this 40 minutes. Uh, Ian, you were just talking about um, you know hail and sort of the studies that you guys have developed there in the last six or so years. Uh I am actually familiar with this instrument, but many people may not. It's called a distrometer. Tell us why a distrometer is important in these types of studies. And I, I hear that you've developed or built some fairly unique ones. 
Yeah, so so distrometer is anything that measures particle size, and for us, it's hail. We want to look at the distribution of hail within thunderstorms, collect a time history of what that looked like, um, and, and I always kind of think you know observations lead the way, and you can you can save the world with adaptive observing networks. Um, that's kind of my own personal thing. Uh, so we knew we wanted to understand what uh, the distribution of hailstones look like within, say, a supercell thunderstorm. So. Uh, come to find out, again, turning to a classic science literature search that uh, John Lane at NASA at Kennedy Space Center back in the early 2000s developed an impact distrometer for hail. It basically has a little acoustic sensor underneath a plate. And there's actually a few versions of this, even in the commercial space now. Um, we knew we wanted to build a bunch of them and do it for low cost. So we want to be able to set up 18 of these in a network out ahead of a thunderstorm, kind of like the, the Vortex 2 program. I took... Our background from Texas Tech and the Sticknet uh, instruments that were used there, and uh, turned it to hail. So um, we took some low-cost uh, robotics microcontrollers. We use an Arduino Do as our data acquisition system, and it's got a really big processor on it, and it only costs forty dollars. So you can build a bunch of these for low cost, and that's to me excites me about where all this instrument and in situ work can go is the lower cost of electronics and be able to do all these neat things. But we wanted to look inside a thunderstorm and look at the the number of hailstones. You know, does that affect damage? Um, are there changes in hail size, like the, the largest size? Does it fall in a specific place within a, a supercell? And we're starting to unlock some of those things. And, and measurements really can lead the way. And another thing that can lead the way, apparently, and I want to hear more about this, is 3D printing and scanning technology. I know this has been used in several fields, the medical field, other fields, but you all, it seems, are the first to really start applying this in meteorology. Um, Tanya, walk us through the process of how you get a 3D model of a hailstone. Well, we wanted to get this kind of information to help us understand that density versus strength of hailstones characteristics that we talked about earlier. Um, but basically what we did was we we started looking for a vendor. We knew we wanted to get a better understanding of the hailstone shapes. Um, and as we started looking for a 3D uh, scanner technology, um, we realized that it's a little bit challenging to scan something like ice. There's a whole lot of reflectivity that comes off of it if you're talking about using a laser. Um, but we were fortunate to find a vendor who who really worked with us and, and did a lot of troubleshooting to figure out how we could actually make this possible. Uh, and the secret recipe with regards to scanning hailstones was actually uh, athlete's foot spray. Um, we needed to put a coating on hailstones uh, to be able to, to allow the laser to see it. Wait, um, wait. With, let me make sure I understood that and your <laughs> listeners understood. Athlete's foot spray. So like antifungal spray. Yes. When uh, when we go out to the field, one of the first things that we do when we hit the ground after we pick up the equipment is we go shopping at, uh, you know, the local uh, supermarket or Walmart and pick up our supplies. And one of our big supplies is is athletes foot spray or actually um, computer keyboard duster works, too. Ah, okay. But we're basically just spraying a, a fine coating on the surface of hailstones to reduce that reflectivity on the laser. Uh, and the way that we actually use the scanner is um, we follow in behind hailstorms and pick up hailstones on the side of the road. 
Um, we spray them with uh, our, our spray of choice uh, and then start scanning. Our, our chief person that, that does this in the field, his name is Ross Maiden. He's the first person to ever scan a, a 3D hailstone. Um, he built us a, a little fixture um, that is basically a, a set of positioning targets. Um, so the laser always knows where it is in, in space. Uh, and he's got it mounted on a turntable and he can just rotate the turntable so that we can scan all surfaces of the hailstone fairly quickly um, there on the side of the road and in the back of a van. Um, and then when we're done, we can either just toss it out the door or uh, in some instances we've crushed it to help determine that hardness characteristic or that strength characteristic that Ian mentioned. Um, but we we started this technology, what was it, Ian, back in, was it 2015 that I think we did the first 3D scan? Yeah, we, we explored it in 2014. <laughs> so there's a lot of work going on to figure out how you could actually do this. Um, but yeah, we, we've been doing it since and it's provided these detailed, just, just beautiful three-dimensional digitized models of, of hail that you can do all sorts of things with. And we use those uh, digitized models um, to allow us to 3D print uh, hailstones that we've used for various things. Uh, Ian mentioned uh, looking at the aerodynamics of hailstones and how they fall and how that affects their trajectory and their impact speed and impact energy. Um, so we use 3D prints. Uh, we partner with a, a group in Germany to look at the vertical wind tunnel tumbling of these, and those were based on the 3D prints. Um, last year, was it was it? It was last year. We sent uh, Ross and one of our other um, folks out to Alabama to scan what would eventually become the Alabama state record hailstone that was collected about this time last year. So um, the scanner, you know, we've been using it for four or five years and it's done some pretty cool things uh, over the years. We, we sent it with a colleague um, over to Argentina um, for the Relampago project recently. So um, it's, it's been it's been cool to, to pioneer that technology for use in the field on, on hailstones. Hearing some amazing technology and science from Tanya and Ian Giamanco, uh, two scientists working to understand hail. And we're going to talk about why they are doing this a bit later. But I want to stay in with the science and just geek out for a second. By the way, um, I want to thank WBT Radio in Charlotte. Uh, our guests are coming, uh, coming to us in the taping from that studio. So a uh, shout out to WBT Radio in Charlotte. Now, how many hailstones have you all cataloged and then a follow-up question to that, what are some of the record largest hailstones that our listeners would be like, OMG? So we we have about, oh, we're almost at 3,500 total in our, our database of um, detailed measurements. We've scanned a couple hundred now. Um, scanning takes about two or three minutes per stone, so you're trying to go as quick as you can. So <laughs> Uh, we try to to collect a, a decent database, and we'll keep expanding that as the, the program continues. But if you think about the the record hailstone in the U.S., the Vivian, South Dakota stone, you're talking about eight inches in diameter ish. Um, that's a really really big hailstone. The the Coleman, Alabama stone uh, was somewhere in that 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 four to five inch category. That's another really big hailstone. That's that's sufficient enough to to almost puncture your roof deck if it hits your house. Um, yeah, could you talk so, about, Ian, just speaking of that, before we move forward, a, a stone of those sizes, I mean, what are their fall speeds roughly? It, yeah, you're getting into the 80, 90, and, and once you get to the Vivian hailstone, you're closing in on 100 miles per hour. Um, some of the aerodynamic work we've done showed that, that hail didn't quite fall as fast as we originally thought, but once you're, you're in that, what we would call giants above the four-inch category, uh, you're at 80-plus miles an hour. 
Um, and again, you know, think about the, the kinetic energy equation. It's the square of velocity. So uh, that's a lot of energy that, that a hailstone has to uh, hit your house with. Yeah, and, and and another equation that comes to mind is momentum too, mass times velocity. That's right. And so, you know, I, I, I resonate because my wife and I, there's this, I guess, infamous video now of us out there on social media. We were on our way home from dinner and got caught in a hailstorm here in Georgia last year. And we were in our, we were literally almost home, but then it just uh, tennis ball, baseball size hailstones just start pummeling our car. And my wife and I both are screaming, <laughs> actually, I'm not afraid to admit that. So, because we knew our car was taking some damage, but we were also just trying to get in. There was a little harrowing experience for us. What about, um, you know, let's kind of move into sort of a different area of of the discussion of hail now, because I know you also use radar uh, in addition to sort of your ground-based instruments and your distrometers. Uh, tell us a little bit about how radar is involved in hail detection. Again, some little geek out 101 here, because I know dual polarization radar and other types of radars can be useful. So uh, give us a little 101 on radar detection of hail. Yeah, so so in the prior to the dual pole upgrade, we had to rely on this this notion that reflectivity plus some environmental parameters, you know, melting layer height, et cetera, um, could give us something about hail size. And, and as it turns out, as we've gotten better and better observations, you know, some of those algorithms have some pretty big error bars. Um, they just don't quite give us the the level of detail that we'd really like. Well, then the dual pole upgrade comes along, and that. You know, we talk about it with tornado debris detection and being kind of revolutionary. For hail detection, it's it's the same thing. It's being able to have those vertically and horizontally oriented pulses giving you a cross-section of the scatter. You can uh, understand something about hail there. Um, the, uh, the KDP uh, variable also can tell you a lot about uh, whether you have a lot of small melting hail. Um, just bringing all those new uh, dual pole moments to bear on on hail is is exciting. Um, it, it's our, our ability to detect it in detail is uh, getting better and better. And I still think dual pole is, is kind of in its infancy in terms of developing good um, uh, hail algorithms. We have the the hydrometeor detection algorithm that does a good job, but I think we can push it even further. And that's where kind of science to operations comes in. Let me let me um, let me sort of follow up on something you said because again, our listeners may may not really kind of sort of get the sense of why this is such a big deal. We as meteorologists know it's a huge deal. Uh, so, just as a sort of setting up the plate here. Uh, you know, raindrops have a certain shape. And in fact, they're not like those teardrops you often see. They're more like uh, hamburger buns in some ways. Uh, snowflakes have a certain shape. Hailstones have a certain shape. So with that sort of setup, talk to us, either one of you, about how a dual polarization radar that sort of sends out horizontally and vertically ori- oriented pulses of microwave energy, how does that lead us to better uh, uh, ability to identify hail that may be within a rain core, for example? Yeah. It, um, so if you look at, say, raindrops, we just mentioned it, you, they have a very oblate shape, so that hamburger bun, but they're, they're kind of thin as they fall. Now, hailstones themselves are also oblate, but not near as much. So they take on almost kind of a, a spherical signature. So we can get that that pulse back from the horizontal and vertically oriented dual pole pulses and radar. We can actually distinguish between those shapes. So for hail, if you look at, say, a big supercell thunderstorm that's got really high reflectivity in the, 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 the core of it, and then you fil- flip over to what we call differential reflectivity, and you see a value somewhere near like zero, 
chances are you have big hail there, meaning that the vertical and horizontally oriented pulses are, are fairly similar in terms of the backscattered energy because those hailstones are, are much more kind of spheroidal than a raindrop. So we can get some information back that way about the shape. We basically get a cross-section. Um, we still don't quite understand how hailstones tumble as they're falling. That, that can help us improve those dual poles um, shape estimates, but it, it's, it's a big start. And um, you can even use almost the correlation coefficient like we do for tornado debris. You can bring all these different things to bear to look for these different shape uh, scatterers that are within a storm. And we can really identify with, with better and better detail where hail is within a thunderstorm. And that's going to improve our, our severe weather warnings, uh, our post-event ability to actually look at a swath of hail and know with confidence that, that hail actually occurred there. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Tanya and Ian Giamanco. And we are talking all about hail. If you've been listening to the podcast so far, your knowledge of hail has increased tremendously. I mean, I've even learned a few things just from listening to these two uh, PhDs, very active in the weather community, uh, leaders in the field. Uh, Tanya, uh, you've partnered with Penn State University in hopes of providing data that can improve hail detection. Tell us a little bit about that partnership and what you're up to. Sure. We partnered with um, Dr. Matt Cumgen several years ago. He and I met at a severe local storms conference for the AMS, oh gosh, seven or eight years ago maybe. Um, and and we were introduced by a colleague because we were both doing work in the hail space. And uh, he was attacking it from the radar side of things, trying to use these new dual pole uh, technologies to try to better understand um, you know, hailstone sizes and distributions throughout particular storms. And we were out there, you know, doing our collections on individual hailstone characteristics to inform what we were doing in the lab. And uh, after talking a little bit, we realized that uh, we had some complementary data sets and some some complementary interest. So we, we started partnering with Matt uh, a couple years uh, ago. Uh, actually, I guess he's probably been with us five, five years in the field, maybe um, pretty early on. So the first year um, he went out with us um, just himself, kind of saw what we were doing, got a feel for um, what our data looked like and really realized how he could use it from a ground truthing perspective. Uh, in order to improve upon radar detection algorithms, you got to know what actually happened so you can compare back to uh, what the radar is telling you happened. So um, he's been partnering with us for several years now. He usually brings a couple of students uh, into the field too so that they get an opportunity to to see the field research aspect of, of meteorology. Um, and, and they do uh, a couple of things back in their uh, back in their research group. Uh, again, trying to improve the way that we can use dual pole, radar uh, to, to better give an estimation of, of hail sizes uh, and where hail fell versus where it did not because we've got the ground truth data to support it. 
and and I meant to uh, sort of ask you this earlier, and I, I think Ian touched on it somewhat. But in, in your field studies or in your use of the radar data um, independently or in collaboration with Penn State, ha- have you noticed anything odd or surprising about the the distribution of the hail sizes or the fall patterns of hail or any, anything that really jumped out at you that you just honestly didn't expect over the years? Uh, there's probably a couple. I'll I'll hit on one first, and then I'll I'll launch it over to Ian. Um, one is that the the gradients in hailfall are extremely tight. We have some cases over the last couple of years where um, the the radar estimates of hail compared to what we were getting uh, from our ground observations or from um, our distrometers, um, you know, there were there were some differences, and part of it is because of that really tight gradient. Um, we've got a case from uh, Oklahoma in 2017 where the distance between um, basically no hail to hail that was over two inches in diameter uh, was less than a mile. Um, so the radar has a hard time, um, you know, putting that tight of a gradient. Um, so it was indicating there was hail where maybe there wasn't, or it was indicating sizes that were pretty different from what we found. And I think just that that gradient or that short distance between um, really, really big damaging hail and no hail at all is so small, um, the radar just has a hard time kind of doing that. Yeah, and so a couple of the other things is, is we're starting to see that the largest hail falls really, really close to the thunderstorm updraft. Uh, and these thunderstorms actually do size sort um, that that that's been out there in the literature for a few years now, but seeing the, the the actual in situ observations that show those same patterns, it also confirms a lot of the storm scale modeling, uh, looking at uh, different trajectories and how a supercell might sort those hailstones, where you see these low concentrations of really big hail very close to the updraft, and then you kind of stretch it out into higher concentrations of kind of the middle of the road stuff um, as you get into that traditional core. Um, but if you just take reflectivity alone and, and, and looking at radar, you might see the same, um, the same value. We have a hard time distinguishing you know, lots of small hail from a few really, really big hailstones, but dual pole gives you that, that added leverage to do that. So that, that's been neat to really see some of those uh, kind of theoretical things and the things we've seen in the storm scale modeling show up in the observations. Um, and that, that's, you know, that, that's kind of the goldmine for us in, in this field. It's just it's really, really fun to see those ideas uh, bear out in the observations. All right. I want to shift gears now. I want to come out of the field and back into your lab. And your lab's located in, in South Carolina. Is that correct? Right. We're located in Richburg, South Carolina, which is a teeny tiny town uh, about an hour south of Charlotte, North Carolina. That is what I thought. So I want to head back to that uh, town, to your lab. Once you're back in that lab in South Carolina, how do you go about creating hailstones that you can test structure resiliency on? Because I know that's what the insurance uh, industry is really interested in. Well, we needed a lot of that field data to be able to do exactly that. We needed a, a good understanding of the density and mass, which, again, there was some of that in the historical literature, but that strength characteristic was one that we definitely needed, which is why we really launched the field program back in 2012. Um, we needed to be able to create ice that had the same characteristics of hailstones so that we could produce the same kind of damages that, are, that, are, uh, that real hailstones do out when they hit real roofs. Um, so the existing 
test methods for um, for looking at the impact resistance of building materials. Uh, one of them is based on a steel ball, um, which is very heavy, dropped from a short distance, and you get a kinetic energy. Um, the problem with that is that you know the the texture and the way that the steel ball behaves when it hits uh, a roofing product is extremely different from what happens when a hailstone hits a roofing product. Um, so we knew that we wanted to do things with ice. Um, we just needed some data to support it. Um, we knew we needed to have um, ice stones that were uh, less dense than if you just put water in your freezer. Um, so I actually started making our hailstones with seltzer water. I would buy all the, the seltzer water um, that I could get from basically every grocery store um, between my house and work. Uh, and I eventually wiped them all out and they didn't restock fast enough. So I got us a, a little seltzer gun like you'd have at a, a bar or a restaurant. Um, and, and I'd pour water into molds with a certain ratio of seltzer water to trap some of those bubbles in. Um, it, it was a laborious process. Um, we did a full-scale demonstration uh, several years ago uh, with about 9,000 hailstones in five minutes, and it took us about six weeks to make all of that ice. Um, we had uh, interns, full-time staff, photographers, and security guards all making ice uh, every single day. Uh, the security guards would do an overnight shift for us about 2 a.m. too to get us some extra ice. Um, <laughs> And we realized, you know, that's not a super efficient use of our time and, um, you know, not not quite as uniform as you might want uh, from hailstones. So we also invested in technology to basically make ice in an automated way that has a lot of controllability. Um, we call it our hail machine. Um, what we're basically doing there is pumping carbon dioxide gas into water, diffusing it for a long period of time, um, and then we chill it very rapidly uh, in about 80 80 minutes or so, we can freeze a six-foot-long rod of ice. Um, once that process is over, we thaw it just enough so that it'll slip out of the device um, and move into the forming chute. And from there, we actually mold the ice in, into spheres uh, using some heated molds. Um, so the process is, is a lot more rapid than it used to be with us filling molds with syringes by hand. Um, but it also has a lot of controllability within the hail machine so that we can get those characteristics of density and strength um, that, we, that we got from our field data set. Um, so it's, it's come a long way um, from back when I was buying grocery store seltzer water um, <laughs> to now where we can make hundreds of hailstones and, and we have unique recipes um, for each of the different kinds of characteristics that we want to make uh, to create the kinds of damages that are really seen out there on real roofs. Now, one of the things I'm learning besides all the cool meteorology is how much time you all spend in stores buying seltzer water and <laughs> and, um, and and athletes would spray. <laughs> my, my expense reports over the years have, have been odd. I've also purchased an ice cream machine, a snow cone maker, and alpha seltzer oh my all for the Hale Lab. <laughs> that, might, that might be a whole podcast in itself to understand that. But, but, but getting back to the really cool work and important work that you both do, what, what have you found to be the most damaging aspect of hail? I mean, is it the fall speed, the, sh the shape, the hardness, the size? Uh, I think it really all kind of comes together. Um, obviously, you know, the mass, the size, uh, the fall speed are all interrelated through that kinetic energy principle. Um, so, you know, bigger hailstones are going to fall faster. They're going to have more kinetic energy. Um, but the strength characteristic is actually one that's that's proven to be really interesting, which, you know, our hypothesis early on was that hard hailstones would potentially be more damaging than soft, slushier ones. 
Um, but what we found is that they actually each kind of promote their own sort of damage. So the hard hailstones are more likely to, um, on, on the surface of a roofing product like an, like an asphalt shingle, um, those hailstones will be more likely to, to cause a dent or a crack in the surface of the shingle, whereas the hailstones that are more soft and slushy are more likely to dislodge a whole bunch of the granules on the surface of a shingle. So both damage modes happen in the field in real world, and both of them are are really important for the functionality of the shingle. Um, you want a, you know, a shingle that's intact, that still has lots of granules um, to make sure that it's going to continue to do its job and shed water off your house. Um, so I don't know that I'd say that one type of hail is more damaging than another, but they, they all do their own kind of thing. And they're all important in terms of the roof being able to, to survive and keep on going. Ian, I'm going to address this question to you. And then, Tanya, I'm going to tee you up with one uh, that, that I want to want you to think about while Ian's addressing that question. So, Ian, what are some of the most extensive damages that you've observed in your career there? And also, what are some of the more resilient uh, examples as well? And then for Tanya, um, what recommendations do you have for improving resiliency during hail uh, storms? Uh, are there cost-effective ways to retrofit or, or or modify homes and building structures? So I want to start with the question I asked Ian first about resiliency and most extensive damage, and then I'll come back to you, Tanya. Yeah, so, you know, now that I'm in the hail realm, all my friends, every time they, they have a hail event, I usually get a text, a phone call, or, or at least an email. And uh, the, one of the Denton hailstorms in Denton, Texas, a few years ago, um, a, a friend of mine from graduate school um, she sent me some pictures of uh, some four-inch hail that basically punctured the the roof decking. That's the the plywood deck that that is your roof. So it went through the shingle, went through the underlayment, went through the deck, and had water coming through in her kitchen. Uh, her and her husband had to deal with that. Um, that's impressive to have a, a, a chunk of ice, a hailstone, do that, uh, go through a roof deck. Um, you know, wind-driven hail can be extremely violent. Um, it can essentially strip vinyl siding off a house. You see that where you have hail embedded, say, in the a rear flank downdraft of a supercell or kind of one of these transitioning supercell to bow echo things where you get, you know, 60, 70, 80 mile an hour surface winds with two inch hail buried in it. Um, that will effectively take the siding off of your house just on one side, but it will uh, be quite damaging. So, uh, you get impressed with what hail can do and you start to realize, you know, people don't think about it that way. We don't really build with, with hail in mind, but you see the damage it can cause. And, and it and it happens all the time. You know, we have friends in, in Norman, Oklahoma, they're on their third roof in five years. Um, so uh, that we just need to really start to think about how we, we build and, and hail should be part of that conversation, especially in the central part of the country. Yeah, and that, that kind of transitions me over to Tanya because what are some of the recommendations for improving resiliency? So the best option really that we can tell people right now is to consider choosing an impact-resistant roofing product. And and you can get that in, in shingles and in metal and tile, all kinds of different roofing systems. On the commercial side, you know, there's certain membranes and other systems that can have an impact-resistant roof rating. Um, that's the best guidance that there really is at this point in time. Um, but what we found through some of our research is that not all impact-resistant products are created equal. Um, so part of our testing that we we've been doing over the last couple of years is to basically change the way that products are tested using the science from the field, using the hailstone characteristics, doing the ice testing within our laboratory. We've actually just developed a brand new uh, testing method 
to look at exactly this so that we can make a better recommendation in the not too distant future and be able to say, okay, impact resistant is the way to go, but also here's the specific kinds of impact resistant products that are doing well against real world types of hail. Uh, so we're, we're just on the cusp of that. We'll be releasing those kind of results in, in the next couple of months, honestly. Um, so stay tuned. There, there's going to be some more information that comes out, but um, right now impact resistant is, is the best we can go, but we want to do a little bit better than that. And this is a follow-up question just because of my own experience recently in my car. I mean, are, are cars thinking more about being hail resilient? I mean, I, I mean, I, I know we, we, we had a car and it's a pretty sturdy SUV, but it, it took some damage. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering if even the auto industry is thinking more about that because I suspect many car dealerships uh, take a pounding each year from hail storms as well. Oh, definitely. Um, actually, as you know, we we went to school at, at Texas Tech, and uh, we just visited recently uh, a couple a couple of weeks ago, uh, and it was amazing to see the number of car dealerships that now have covered canopies and tents and things like that to protect the the cars. Because you're exactly right, uh, a lot of damage comes just from those dealerships, especially when you're talking, you know, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas. The traditional tornado alley is also kind of the traditional hail alley. Um, you know, my my stepmom works for. Uh, a car dealership and, and she was telling me that you know it's becoming challenging to get insurance just because of the amount of hail damage for some of these uh, car dealerships. Um, so you know I think from the insurance industry perspective, I'm sure that they're paying attention. Um, you know our sister organization is the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. Um, you know we'll see kind of where the the path goes. There may be an opportunity in the future to partner with them uh, and see if there's anything we can do about resiliency of autos to hail. Um, but right now, uh, I think most people are mitigating by, you know, covering with canopies and, and big tents at those car dealerships to prevent those thousands and thousands of dollars of losses. Well, I really have enjoyed this conversation drawing to a close. Before we wrap up, uh, what are your, what are your future plans for the Institute or either of you individually in this area? Well, uh, I mentioned that we're going to be releasing those hail results pretty soon. Um, so that'll be taking a product by product look and, and kind of tell you, you know, what's the best value? What's the best option out there for hail resiliency for for roofing products? Uh, we've done most of our focus on asphalt shingles and, at this point, um, but we're going to be doing some testing of metal roofs uh, in a couple of months, as well as um, getting into some of the emerging technology products, the more plastic synthetic kind of products to see if there might be an, an, an opportunity for some new products that might do better um, with regards to hail resiliency. So on the last side of things, we're really going to be focused still on roofing performance against hail. At some point in the future, you know, we may look into siding performance, uh, windows, doors, those kinds of things. But for now, uh, it's all about the roof for us in the lab side of things. In the field, we'll be back out again. Um, we're again focusing on hail swaths and understanding the characteristics of hail within the the thunderstorms themselves using the distrometer network. So uh, to kind of follow our exploits in the field, uh, check out uh, at IBHS Hail Studies, our Twitter handle, but we're going to do some more Facebook Live things from the field this year. Uh, so you can kind of get an inside look at the field projects. We'll have students from Penn State with us. Um, so it'll be another uh, a good year uh, out in the field, hopefully for, for data collection. And I, I was going to ask you if there was a site or somewhere they could follow you on social media. So I'm glad you got that out there. What about either of you? Are you guys on social media? Yes, we're both active on social media. So my Twitter handle is uh, Tanya underscore BG underscore WX. 
and mine's uh, ijamanco33. Uh, that's my Twitter handle. I stick to my old baseball number, 33, in there. But, yeah, please uh, please follow us on social media. Also, disastersafety.org uh, to see what we're up to at IBHS. You can find our uh, our Twitter and social media feeds there. We got all sorts of stuff that's out there and what we're doing at the lab and in the field. So please check it out. And I, I really want to thank Dr. Tanya and Dr. Ian Giamanco for joining us on Weather Geeks. Geeks, this is really, I mean, this has been one of the sort of ultimate geek outs. I mean, I've done a lot of podcasts and TV shows for the Weather Channel, uh, Weather Geeks program, and this has been one of my favorite because it really represented a nice mix of weather geekdom and societal implications and applications, too. So I want to thank you both for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Marshall. It's good to talk. Yep, yeah, as well. And thank you all for tuning in and listening to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll see you next time and go out there and subscribe to some of our other episodes as well. 